Welcome to the Cinematic Void Podcast. Cinematic Void is a cult film series that hosts screenings in the Los Angeles area as well as virtually. I'm your host, Jim Branscombe, and joining me as always is... Hey, it's Nick Vance, Paranoid Futures. Uh, you can find Cinematic Void on the World Wide Web at cinematicvoid.com as well as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and all major podcast platforms. If you want to support The Void, you can consider joining our Patreon. Joining me today for our ongoing um, film programmer series where I'm talking to some of my favorite film programmers, my peers, people across the country who do the Lord's work of figuring out how to show movies in a movie theater. Uh, today's guest is the artistic director of the C Film Center, founder of Cinema Q, and also a filmmaker that is currently working on the documentary The Heels Have Eyes. Please welcome to The Void, Keith Garcia. Keith, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So I've recorded a few of these already, and you came up in the previous two. Uh, I talked to Teresa, who does Scream Screen, which you work with at the C Film Center. And I talked to William Morris, who I guess worked at the C Film Center, and you guys still kind of work occasionally together. So the first question, because this is film programming is the odd career. I don't think anyone really sets out to do it. How'd you fall into this life of picking movies to screen for an audience? I will say it wasn't at all a goal. Like it was never on my bingo card that this is actually, you know, an attainable thing. But um, I'd say it just started with my first like movie theater job when I was like 16. Took that job knowing, knowing I wanted to get into the industry in some capacity. At that ripe age, it was definitely like, I'm going to be a film director and I'll get there somehow, but I might as well be that kid that starts at the movie theater. So worked at the AMC Colorado Plaza 6, working concessions, tearing tickets, all that stuff. And I maintained pretty steady like movie theater jobs only. I, I've only really had one-ish other job that wasn't movie theater related. Um, in my in my many years but um yeah went from just being that 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 low on the rung person to just a few short years later like 1997 I started working for Landmark Theater in Denver called the Mayan that is mostly notable because it was like a an 80 year old building at the time um a really great like cinema palace um, that is recently uh, without my without my management fallen into disrepair, but that's a whole other story. But I started there uh, during a break in college, just doing box office and ticketing, just looking for a little side job. And then within like a year or so, I was running the whole theater as the town manager. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in that same practice too, um, we had been doing a. I say we landmark had been doing a a midnight film series back then that was successful and then they started asking my opinion for what should play and that's where I think this kind of idea of programming started was um the gal I worked with at landmark um Audra Freeman who's no longer there she had a really great programming mind and it was often both of us bouncing ideas off of each other or just confirming that we were like, oh, are you feeling this trend that's going on? Maybe it'd be really cool to do a series like this. And we just did that for a few years. And it was a summer only midnight series. And then its popularity became a year round 
Midnight series for a couple of years. And then um, I took off from there onto other other jobs uh, for other movie theaters that revolved mostly around managing the theater, but there was always some aspect of the programming that I had my fingers in. And then just my time with uh, the Denver Film Society, uh, which has been the last 20 years, you know, with the C Film Center and previously a theater called the Stars Film Center, uh, programming just really kind of took over um, that aspect of it. But there you go. All kind of like slightly accidental, but then like there it was. Someone realizing that someone actually needs to pick these movies and who better to do that than myself. Now, when you're looking and talking strictly on the repertory end, because obviously the C Film Center does new releases and that kind of stuff too. When you're looking at rep stuff, what do you look for? Like how far in advance do you plan? Do you like have a, is it just like you have a germ of an idea of like a series you want to do? Or are you just looking for like, maybe we should do a run of films like this, or is it just a little bit of everything? It's a little bit of everything. Actually having a theater that needs theatrical to really survive um, needs that week long engagement or, you know, three month long engagement of some, you know, a three hour Japanese film. It, it's a little bit more difficult. So I do feel very skilled in a sense. <laughs> and I, and I say that only, you know, I'm not, I'm not taking myself that seriously. Um, but it, it takes a lot to have three screens that you are at your disposal that you have to keep constantly filled with these titles you need for the long run, a la, you know, we have Barbie and Oppenheimer playing at our theater right now. And then finding the spots where you can put in the repertory, which will also do well, but repertory does take a little bit more effort because depending on how you are releasing it, either you can have something like Teresa's Scream Screen series where she likes to do that a couple months out or at least plan that. Um, and it's a matter of, that's usually like one night. We're trying to find like one night to do a thing, but do it really well and really incredibly. And then I might, you know, see a certain type of film coming up down the road and be like, you know, it might be time to do um, a series about the director or this type of thematic film if there is some kind of uh, programming that can be done around themes, then great. Um, I'd like to plan that out as far in advance as I can. Unfortunately, I can't, it, it's, it's always very like the most I can get ahead of myself these days is three months. Um, I would love to have a whole year planned out <laughs> <laughs> uh, with some loose room to like fit in things that come up in pop culture or, or whatever stuff that I'm just not seeing until we're a little bit closer to the moment. But I mean, goals to me right now is definitely like the Academy Museum in LA. Like that thing is, is that thing has like the expanse of cinema at its fingertips and is so, so well thought out that, and I know that's a group of people. So that's not just uh, one person, but to be able to, to dance around that kind of programming would be really cool. Now, how did you become involved at the C Film Center? Because you obviously worked at different theaters, but how did you end up eventually landing here? I had just been coming off of, this is like 2004. I'd just been coming off of one job that was 
Um, it was movie theater related. It was this old company called Madstone that had some theaters around the country. And they were kind of art house, kind of mainstream-ish, whatever. They were kind of trying to be cool. Um, I was very anti-landmark at that point um, for many reasons. And uh was working for them at a theater here. And then the theater just suddenly closed one day. Like we got a day's notice and then it was like, Hey, help us like close up the theater and then see ya. Bye. And I had a friend that had just started working for Denver film and she had said, Hey, um, they need some help with like theater management over here. So I was like, cool. And actually I have, I have a secret like creative side of displays, making displays for theaters, for, for movies. Um, that was kind of a little side thing I used to do all the time at the Mayan and other places, just make giant, you know, movies coming out. Let me find a theme and let me create a cool looking window display or something like that organically for it. So I kind of got hired to manage and then do some displays there. And then... Before I know, like an office job opened up in administrative, and then from there too, there a programming programming manager. Actually, what was the actual proper term? I will just say manager coordinator was actually what it is. Programming coordinator job opened, and that was really mostly designed to be like there are these three major programmers in the department that I'd been working with, you know, for a year, just kind of and on one side. But essentially it was like, hey, come to the programming meetings and listen to the ideas and write them down. And then uh, when things need to be booked, will you book it? And will you start to get assets together? And will you start to get these bits and pieces together? And uh, I did that and I was very good at it. And then Something that happens in our organization is that we put on this gigantic film festival every November, uh, the Denver Film Festival. It's 12 days. It's like over 200 films. It's a whole it's a whole big to do. So come, uh, you know, three months before that festival, suddenly those three programmers have to kind of disappear, like their duties ramp up on the film festival. And there's no one left to take care of the Stars Film Center, their year-round movie theater, programming-wise, at least. So then I was like, well, I'm here. I'll just take care of that. And then suddenly I was, you know, meeting about the weekly engagements that were playing and then starting to work on some some, some film programs and uh, and other stuff. And it was really good. And then the rest is history. So you just basically, because of the way, the nature of this business, because you got an opportunity, you jumped on it and you capitalized it and you were able to just keep moving up and evolving. At what point did you kind of end up being the artistic director? I think officially artistic director um, came about in 2018. And I hate to say it, though, he would find it funny, too. My good friend, Britt Withy, who was the artistic director for Denver Film, um, passed away suddenly in an accident. And it left this big kind of spot, which me and another associate, uh, Matt Campbell, who was working on the festival side of things, we were kind of there under him 
and it just made sense to make us each both artistic directors in our own kind of fields, our own areas. And that was how we officially became the spots of where we are. But like I said, he would, uh, Britt would have found that funny to be like, it took, it took him <laughs> passing away for us to be finally be artistic directors. But I mean, the more time we spent there, we would, there would have been some kind of, as we grew, uh, you know, a, a three-headed serpent would have emerged. That would have been really cool for programming. Um, but, but this was this was how uh, we we took over, uh, kind of fulfilling his legacy a bit. Like he was an amazing programmer, and being able to juggle both this festival and stuff at the film center was um, was fantastic. And so um, he'd be very excited to see what we're both doing with with our roles right now now i know you're more on the just regular theater repertory and like you know the the first run and like that kind of side of it is but could you just talk about like the difference between doing a festival versus doing repertory and regular screenings just like how vastly different like those components are absolutely and we're one of the only organizations that does both very well <laughs> so there's some there's plenty of other organizations that kind of see what we do and they're like I do not understand how y'all manage both of those things because they're both huge undertakings hence I think why it makes sense for there to be two artistic directors leading those things but the film festival side of things is is kind of the the leader in an aspect of it um with the film festivals um you have a set amount of days and your goal is essentially bringing the best of new film. Maybe sometimes, you know, some, some repertory titles mixed in there when it's an anniversary or something that ties into something with the film festival, but you're trying to bring in all these new submissions, new films to showcase to your audience as literally like the best of the year. Um, or what's forthcoming is it off sometimes some of the stuff that plays a film festival doesn't get released theatrically for three to six months um sometimes some things you play in a film festival never get played theatrically they just go straight to um, a blu-ray release or digital or something like that but what we're saying in those moments is we're kind of being tastemakers and saying all right this is this is the giant swath of films we think you should be looking at for the next year and there's obviously stuff we can't get for various reasons with film rights and strategies of, you know, marketing a film after it plays other film festivals and stuff like that before it's theatrical release. But um, it's just a big 12 day party of the best of the best um, of what's to come. And that in turn kind of feeds the theatrical theater in the sense of the best of those films will then hopefully plug right back into your theater in time as they get released over the next year. Um, and one aspect is reminding the festival folks, hey, that favorite film of yours from the festival is being released now. You can tell other people about it. Or just organically starting fresh with a whole new audience and be like, all right, we played this film at a festival and it's really amazing. Come check it out now. And finding that balance of stuff. I mean, some of our biggest hits of the year, each year that we have theatrically, are ones that started in our film festival first. And that in turn leads to those theatrical titles playing for, you know, weeks, months, etc. And then 
I kind of I jokingly like to talk to it as like that then they become ghosts. They run their life and they die. And then they become these sweet repertory ghosts. And those ghosts like live in perpetuity and haunt us. And we have access to <laughs> the afterlife portal with them and we're able to um curate them into um into really cool you know uh themes and ideas and programs and uh put them in different contexts and they were released you know people ask us about are you gonna you know landmark has gotten into a zone where they've started to play a lot of marvel films um and films of that ilk and definitely playing barbie and oppenheimer is a is a stretch for us but one that still makes a lot of sense when you really think about what those films are at at their core. But the Marvel question comes up because Landmark's obviously looking to, to make as much money as they can these days because they're not doing so well. And I don't mind telling the world that they're not doing well. Um, <laughs> but um, for me, I, I, I don't seek to play Marvel films at the C Film Center, mostly because I think in their theatrical iteration, I don't care about that kind of putting it out there and success and and whatever uh i don't think our audience necessarily connects with those films in that way either but down the road our ability to curate past marvel films into context in regards to different themes about you know there's there's marvel or other superhero films about uh minorities or, or marginalized groups that fit really well in a pattern it's like hey why don't we look at it this way um they're more interesting sometimes when after they're dead theatrically um to bring back in context in a program and create other stuff around it bring someone a guest lecturer to talk about something bring out a, 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 a some form of talent from the film um talk about the experience there's there's a whole other world that exists um, when you get to the repertory side of things, and I find that so very exciting. And wish I could devote my entire time to repertory booking, but um, and our screens to repertory booking, but uh, that doesn't pay the bills for the most part. So, so you've been doing this for a long time. Can you talk about just the evolution of like the art house, the repertory cinema and like that, how it's gone for like the last 20 years or so, because it's kind of changed. We went from like, everything was on film, then everything was plattered, then it went to DCP and now it's creeping back to people want to see these things on film again. And I guess on the bigger points, like how the audience has changed over the years. You know, when I kind of came into this field you know, I started at an AMC where it was just it was just the Hollywood films, but the Mayan Theater that I eventually would work at and run was doing um, repertory art house, and their calendars when I was younger used to just like entrance me so because it would be a whole month at a time, and it would be like, oh, here's four brand new art house films, and art house being this word back then in the in the 90s for like foreign <laughs> or uh you know documentaries about real people you know nothing exciting as sort of like it seemed at the time um and then just this whole massive selection of repertory films that they would also play in conjunction with the main films they were playing or starting a midnight series or just doing like you know 
you know, Fellini Fridays or like whatever, you know, this kind of like fell into their, their programmers um, wheelhouse at the time. And when I made it to the Mayan, it was like, say it was like 97, 96, 97. And there had just been this interesting comeuppance from Sundance. The Sundance Film Festival had just started really turning out a lot of amazing films in the early 90s. And so the energy at Sundance every January was really electric with these independent art house films. And so by the time, my little span of time at the Mayan, 97 to like 2001, was filled with so many of these films. Um, like, I mean, that we did, we premiered um, Darren Aronofsky's Pie, like to great success um, at the Mayan when that first came out. And, but I'm a cheerleader and being John Malkovich and um, Run Lola Run and um, just Blair Witch Project was an insane, insane <laughs> uh, film at the time when we played it. Um, I could tell you a whole story about that, like and how I can see that things literally changed for the world of movies in when the, with the release of Blair Witch Project, based on how our little art house opened that film, but that was that was kind of it it's like art house meant one thing and then you know i mean we can use Blair Witch project as an as a as a as a time marker after that the idea of how studios released these smaller films into a much bigger way kind of took over and the sort of the worlds of art house and mainstream kind of merged a little bit and i feel like it's only been the last uh, 10 years as like 824 has gotten a good foothold and and searchlight films and um neon and some of these companies that take these formerly what would be considered art house smaller films and turn them into bigger more successful more um more mainstream in a sense but still not like 100 um mainstream kind of films it's been a wild evolution to watch it all and how's the audience changed over years because you know it i i guess you get would you say like where you're at it's kind of a college town so you have an audience that constantly rotates out every like three or four years or is it just kind of like a lot of locals or a mix of both well we have a bunch of colleges in our town but i would never call our call denver a college town it's just a, a major metropolitan area that itself has become like a very, very populated city in a short amount of time. Um, we were the first city to like legally sell marijuana for retail. Uh, that was back in 2014. Um, and it's just become this kind of, I mean, I will say melting pot, but not necessarily of like cultures, but of like a whole mess of people in general um it's really hard to put a fingerprint on like what our audience really is because i will will have an event of well i'll use barbie and oppenheimer as an example this weekend being there all weekend to see all these sold out screenings i could not put an exact like if i had to put like 18 to 35 female male uh tech people student 
whatever. It just is like, it was just people who were swept up, especially this weekend, in like the movie moment of the year, of the decade, really, is what it kind of feels like. But, <laughs> um, or at least of the, since the pandemic, <laughs> we'll say. We'll say that. Yeah, I, it's been harder and harder to kind of figure out what our audience exactly is. All I know is that the more that we do things like, you know, scream screen alongside, you know, a, a, a French repertory series, an Agnes Varda series, or um, this program that we have at Red Rock Stamp Theater called Film on the Rocks, where we're showing, you know, blockbuster cult films to 8,000 people in one shot. It's just people who love movies. And I think that that's kind of become its own kind of audience in a way, because I think that with streaming and all these series and all this stuff, like there's there's a little difference. You can run into people who you think would be movie lovers and they're like, no, I only like binge watching shows. But you're like, well, but that's, you're essentially watching a few long movies and they're like, no, it's different. Like, okay, I guess it is, but <laughs> um there is a there is a splice between um or a split between um you know who who really comes to the movies anymore and and coming out of the pandemic, it was really hard to figure out who would be coming back at all. Cause there were people I knew who were members of Denver Film who I would see all the time on the regular and then coming out of the pandemic, you know, when the when did the vaccines roll out? That was like twenty twenty one. I think it was late. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was like the kind of spring, maybe summer two thousand twenty one. Yeah, maybe, maybe some of them were earlier. I can't remember. Yeah, but I but I know people who, like I said, were these like staunch film lovers who were devoted to our theater. And they didn't come out for their first movie until 2023. Wow. You know, 2023. Um, and it's so interesting to feel this weird reset button that um, I don't think did anything bad. I mean, obviously, our lack of business for a good 18 months. I mean, we were closed for 18 months um, when the pandemic started. Um, it just took that long for, we were not ready to go back. We didn't want to devote time to just sort of like getting by. We wanted to make sure that we had a film festival that we were leading off with and that there were going to be films coming out that we might be able to make successful. But we spent 2022 really kind of like suffering a bit through it all, but hoping that all the business was going to come back. And then, um, middle of 2022 or late 2022 to um to now has just been fantastic to see it all kind of like bounce back but um i i still i look at who is back or who's coming now and i i still can't pinpoint exactly what the audience is or what we really lost kind of you know in the fire of the pandemic um I know we're getting our membership base back again. We had a very, I think we had like 6,000 members pre-pandemic. And then uh, when we reopened, we were at like a couple hundred. Oh, wow. Active members. And then 
we've slowly been building that back up again to be back to where I think we're we're very happy to have back. I think like repertory is one thing that really increased um, very well in that time period because people started to realize that like the movies that make them happy or the movies that they've never seen but heard about but challenged them and all that stuff was like, hey, let's watch these. And let's watch them in a theater. Like that sounded really cool to a lot of people who spent so much time streaming things just because to let the time go by or or feel like they were actively still engaged in watching movies, even if they couldn't really go to the theater or were scared to or all that stuff. But doing it with films that that were familiar, um, I think just kind of like sparked the renaissance of that. And I've seen it happen in in our repertory series that we do in other people's repertory series like i watch your series you know and how popular that's that's been going um and i think that's great i mean i i truly feel like this last november december was when i started to see a huge click up in things and one of the first things we did back this year was january giallo with you and that was a very popular series considering the deep cut nature of most of those films. Um, but also a bit, uh, I, I say a bit, a good chunk with, you know, Teresa's audience and how much people trust what she puts forward um, in that as a programmer. And I hear it all the time from a lot of folks too. And people do appreciate what I do as a programmer and say it. And it definitely does come from a place of trust. Like people, people have not felt that I've led them astray in any fashion. Or if they, if I do occasionally, um, they forgive me. <laughs> That's the thing. It's as you know, like you can't just show nothing but bangers. You have to like push the boundaries of what you can screen, which I think yeah. that's, that's with any good film programmer. You're going to show movies that you don't like, but think there's value in having an audience see it. Exactly. Yeah. And that's one of my favorite things. Sometimes it's been like, huh, can't believe only two people wanted to see that movie. <laughs> <laughs> that, I would have, but okay. For the post lockdown phase of the pandemic, it seems like repertory has done better. And it's like, you know, I, this year has probably been the best year I've had like audience and attendance wise. And I know, from what you're telling me and some of our um, friends who also across the country, it's been great for them because it used to be like, you know, the new release was the thing that would carry the theater and the rep stuff would kind of supplement it. And I think you just hit on something very important that like there's an audience that wants to see classic movies, which kind of brings me to my next question. It's you can correct me if I'm wrong, but is the C center the only theater in Denver that can do 30 that can screen 35 millimeter currently? In Metro Denver, yes, there okay. is an Alamo in another another city suburb uh, that has a thirty five millimeter setup, but they run it very rarely and not well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we're in Metro Denver. We're the only thirty five millimeter real to real projection theater um, still standing, and why well, say still standing? The theater's not old. <laughs> the theater's <laughs> but that our projection system is still standing uh, and is great and uh, did break last year <laughs> we had a good like eight month chunk where we couldn't use it we didn't know if it was going to be usable again 
And then we found the right magic person to help it service it and get things back up and running. And um, it's been fantastic ever since. And we're currently showing Oppenheimer on 35 millimeter film for two weeks. Do you find, and you know, because in LA, format is king in all repertory like if you're showing some people are more inclined to go see something on 35 over at dcp or go th- see stuff in 70 or whatever do you find there's a specific part of your audience or that the audience wants to see things projected on film or does it not really matter in the grand scheme i think in denver it doesn't matter i think it's nice when people when we do play something in 35 and we do have a good print um people find it great they love it but i'm at a i'm at a particular place with film restoration and stuff like that where if i can show you a crisp version of a movie that points out all the like joys of the colors and and the process with it um in a new dcp i'm going to go that route um if I'm if if a 35 is available for a film that doesn't need those intricacies pointed out and it's a good print, I'll go that route. But uh we're putting on the Denver Silent Film Festival in, in September, and that's a whole other world too. We're working with this guy, Howie Moshevitz, who's been in in film criticism and all that stuff for about 50 years. And um, he started this silent film festival here and they used to do 16 and 35 all the time and in the last like four years an archivist that he's worked with for decades told him stop it with the 35 request he's like we're spending all the time <laughs> to restore these films put them on these amazing dcps to look better than they've ever looked before and I need you to get over 35 millimeters. <laughs> <laughs> and so his vessel has since just been DCP only, um, which is fine. Uh, we actually are going to try to convince him, since we're doing the festival at our place this year, um, to do at least like one, one 35 print, if it's a good print, just for the sake of the specialness of it. And I think that's the thing is, to me, 35 should feel special and not gross. And... Nothing's worse than, to me, showing a really god-awful print that's missing footage, that um, has, you know, vinegared out or a whole bunch of other, you know, problems and, and, and things, when I know that a really great DCP is easily available. <laughs> and part of that is... You know, there's there's so many costs associated with repertory that aren't necessarily associated with um, theatrical. Theatrical, like from the deal you make with the distributors for the box office, which, you know, for repertory, you need to provide a guarantee for the most part. And it's usually about $300. So you have $300 you're on the kitty for right then. And then if you do a 35 print, uh, there's the rental fee of that print from a source, which is usually about $150, $200. And then you have the shipping of that print, which in Denver, we have to have everything sent from everywhere. In LA, you're very lucky. You can probably mm-hmm. walk back and pick things up all the time and it's no problem. You're paying gasoline and not yeah. uh, 
Um, but a round trip shipping of a print from Denver, from New York or LA or other places is about $250. Mm-hmm. At that point, we're, uh, you know, six or $700 deep in what we have to make back to, um, to, to cut even. And most often I'm trying to offer the repertory films for not terribly expensive because I want people to keep coming to, to a lot of them. So it makes sense in our current state of inflation and whatnot to give people a, a cheap opportunity to enjoy films all the time. So I need, if I'm, if I'm charging from, our members get movies on the weekends for $9 and during the week for five. Um, and so just the number of people that I need to fill a house to break even uh, becomes more and more. And that's, and when I think about the fact that I can get a DCP of a film for just the guarantee of $300 and that's all I have to be concerned about uh, making back, then that sometimes can sway my opinion. Unless there's a really amazing reason to bring out a 35 print. That's one thing I I'm glad you brought up because I maybe last year I did a whole episode on just film programming and I kind of because there's a lot of people out there and I don't know if you get it as much in Denver but like here in LA that everyone wants to be a film programmer it's it's like this magical hot job or something like that but I basically did an episode just breaking down the cost and all that and you know because you're central well I didn't say central but sort of central to the United yeah. States. Exactly. Yeah. Cause, <laughs> cause in LA it's like, you know, there's, we can pick up, there's studios like universal where you just drive to universal where the theme park is, you go on the back lot and get stuck behind the tram and go pick up prints, but they also have their archives. There are like five or six hours out of the way too, but you know, shipping costs are expensive and it like, it costs money to show a film on 35. I think it's really great that you hit on the economic side of it because like, you know, here, even what I do, I show a lot of 35, but like occasionally I got to ship in a print from the East coast because it's not a studio print. It's a cult film. And like, it's the only choice. And then it comes down to, is this screening going to do well enough to justify that? And how often, I mean, is it been a lot of choices that you've had something that you want to like really want to do? And then just like, I don't know if it's going to make economic sense or do you just kind of pick and choose like, you know, maybe I'll take a chance on this or, Sometimes you just like can't do it, just gonna play the DCP. I would say that uh, if I have a problem, <laughs> like addiction, um, when it comes to repertory film programming, is it's mass. Mm-hmm. I don't wanna show four films in a program, I wanna show 40. And it is a problem. <laughs> <laughs> and I it's like right now we're um we're gonna do this '90s film program in September because we're doing this event that is very '90s themed at the end of August and that event's gonna go very well and we want to bring those people back to the C Film Center so we're like hey come watch this '90s film program and. I looked at that program and and the possibilities and what like you know we took a lot of staff suggestions and things like that and I look at it and I'm like my boss our CEO was like you know just play like four or five of these 
in a program, have a little 90s program on Wednesdays, and we'll do four or five of them. And I'm like, no, we're going to do 15. <laughs> and I will scatter them throughout September, and it won't feel weird. Like, it'll be a nice array. So the whole month will feel like a nice little just, you know, breeze through the 90s. Um, and people may come to, you know, two. People may come to eight. People may come to all 15. But I I want the variety of being able to do that. And yeah, I would say that's that's my only thing. But then you know, you add all those guarantees up and it's like, okay, well, <laughs> now I have the whole series is on the hook for like three thousand dollars. So let's make sure that we make that back over the course of the month. Makes a lot of sense. Now you've hosted and programmed a ton of events over the years what are some of your favorite kind of highlight events that you've been able to do just it can if you just want to focus on the c film center that's fine or just you know if you want to go broad and just just your vast like programming career it's up to you i mean when we were when when i was helping out with the the midnight films at the mayan which I like to feel instrumental in that program succeeding. Like Landmark still does midnight movies to this day. And I often feel it is because of what we started at the Mayan. Um, they they did them in LA. They did, you know, they had their spots, but the Mayan midnight program has been alive and well since 1996. Um, and I don't think a side pandemic aside has ever not happened. In some capacity, it's why it moved from into the Esquire, which is another landmark theater about a decade or so ago. But it was being able to program those films. And at the time, the Mayan was a 400 seat house. And to be able to introduce these films to 400 people and for myself to do an introduction before each one, to have an audience just excited and ready at that size for a film um, is wild. And I really loved doing that every single weekend um, during that time. Um, but notably beyond that, like, I mean, I've hosted film programs with, actually, it's 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 showing films first. That's a really an amazing feeling. But then sometimes when we get lucky to have special guests, um, associated with the films come out, that's like the extra cherry on top to me is to be able to connect that loop for folks to just be, you know, most people are just happy with, oh, I just love watching my favorite film on screen. But then, oh, I get to talk to the director too or this actor that I've never, I thought was dead or <laughs> you know, like whatever. Any of those things like that can just elevate those experiences to me is 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 fantastic. And I mean, I've I've hosted, you know, Mink Stoll for screenings, Pam Greer. I mean, we're about to do Udo Kier here in a few weeks. Um, you know, Joe Bob Briggs. Um, I'm going to forget nearly every other person. <laughs> um, I, but it's 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 been fantastic, and just to be able to have those things and those memories of these filmmakers and actors in re-enjoying their films and sharing it with with an audience like that's ultimately if i really think about what's the most rewarding thing that you can do in your job 
to me, that's it. It's creating those moments for people, for an audience, you know, take me out of it. I love the moments, but I don't need to. It's not about me at that time. It's, it's about, you know, the people meeting Joe Bob Riggs. Like there were so many people who you could just tell they never thought they'd be able to meet Joe Bob Riggs a few weeks ago until he was at the film center talking to people before the films, meeting them, doing all that. I mean, same goes with like Pam Greer. Like anytime I've done an event with her, like she really loves her fans and is still just as like mysterious and cool um, as anyone would imagine that she would be. So, um, you know, just what that audience gets out of that moment is like, I won't say that's payment enough for me. I still have bills, but that is <laughs> karmically, um, that's payment enough for me. Kind of following up on that because you're in Denver and you know, you're, it's not New York or LA where there's a lot of talent. Can you talk about, you know, kind of what you have to do to get talent to come out to Denver? Like, obviously you probably have to like, unlike LA where it's like, Hey, you want to come to the screening? Sure. I live a, like 10 minutes away from the theater kind of stuff. Like I, I know we have like this really shitty advantage, but like, you know, you guys are, you have, in like the C film center still have had people come out. Uh, could you just talk for like those people that like are doing film programming that aren't LA or New York and just like the difficulties, the challenges, but the rewardingness of being able to have guests for screenings. Absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, no matter where you live, just ask people if <laughs> they want to come out. I mean, and people don't think about things that I think in the scope of, oh, that sounds like a long way to go for something. It's like when you pitch your idea to an actor or director or something, just let them know that you have a really good little program going. You have uh, a, an audience and that audience would love to see them. Um, you know, you will need some money for it. You know, these, these, Actors, many of them, you know, make their own money right now on appearances or on like merch sales or things like that. And it usually doesn't go so far as I mean, some some folks these days do have very large fees for their appearances, but some people just want, you know, a, a first class flight and some hotel and making sure that they get taken around town and maybe there's a little per diem, like a $50 a day per diem or something like that. Like it's all very affordable and you can all balance it out in your ticket price. I mean, you are bringing someone very special sometimes to these shows and audiences will pay a little bit more than the standard ticket price for that experience. And if you budget it right, you can make that all back and still create an incredible moment out of it. So any person I've ever wanted in Denver, we just asked. We just found the right, either found their direct contact, which just so you know, most people are just their name at gmail.com. <laughs> um, <laughs> like really not that hard. <laughs> you know, the IMDB is IMDB pro is a friend for being able to just be like, oh, here's this person's manager and call up somebody. And they're like, yeah, they probably want to do that. I'll call, I'll ask them right here. You email them. It's not as scary as it seems. I mean, yes, are there A-list currently, you know, 
I wouldn't try to get Ryan Gosling on on an email right now and anything like that. But there are plenty of people who via even like Instagram DMs will get back to you <laughs> about their possibilities of of coming out and sharing a screen with you. And um, I think it's an amazing thing to do, like get a series going and and then after you get some footing, you decide like, you know what, we're going to celebrate one year of this series by bringing someone out. So let me get working on that like six months in and figure out who you want to do and then take the time to to work on it. And then that may open the door for more people to come out. Um, also come up with like an original idea, like very often sometimes, and I'm not saying that these are people you don't want to come out, but just the notion of, I'm going to come out. I'm just, I'm using Pam Greer as a reference, not because this was the reaction, but I'm just saying, you know, how many screenings of, of Foxy Brown has she been to where she's just been asked to introduce it and do a Q and a it's, you know, a movie of hers that she loves. She did it. It's part of her, her legend, but after probably 40 of those, she's probably tired of doing <laughs> So find a new rub on what could get Pam Greer out um, to talk about something. So I had a program. I had a very brief stint working for Alamo Draft House as a creative director here in Denver um, in like 2013 to 14. And I created a program, which I'm giving away to any listeners right now, um, <laughs> that I called uh, Color um Color Commentary was the name of the, the series. And what it was, was we brought out, we had films with filmmakers or talent where we played the film a little bit lower than normal. And we turned up a microphone for the talent. And they essentially were doing a live audio commentary while you watched the movie. So the idea was, Either it's a favorite movie of a lot of people who've seen it before or watch it before you come <laughs> and then sit and watch it with that talent in person. So we brought Pam out for a screening of, um, shoot, was it Foxy Brown or was it Coffee? I think it was Foxy Brown. Um, but in that instance, so I sat with her just as a like, I had a mic of my own just in case. You never know sometimes with some folks. They're they're down for the idea, but then you might be like, oh, you're not really talkative. Like, let me ask you a question. Like, oh, tell me about that scene there. And then they can go and do a whole story. But she needed no help. Um, she, from the moment the movie started, started singing and dancing to the opening theme song. Um, started telling stories about like, the actors, who was good, who was not. Like there was a lot of juicy stuff and fun stuff in her her reading of the film that night. Um and it was an amazing experience. Um we had our Ryan Johnson in that same program to do um Looper. Uh this was pre-Star Wars, pre-that fame. Um we had Guinevere Turner out to do American Psycho as she wrote that screenplay, adapted that screenplay. Um, we had Sam Jones out for Flash Gordon. Um, it's just it's just a fun new way to look at and experience a film with an amazing talent. And so 
Um, I haven't really done that program or a similar idea for that since, but it's definitely one I kind of want to restart um, just because it is a really original way to kind of like tweak the normal idea of, of a, a celebrity visit. This is a really cheesy way to put it, but <laughs> someone once told me, shoot for the moon because you're just going to catch a few stars on the way down, no matter what. So, I mean, you only miss the shots that you don't take or whatever right. that metaphor is. <laughs> now, I wanted to ask you about Cinema Q. Could you talk about what what Cinema Q is and how it got started? Yeah, Cinema Q is uh, Colorado's only LGBTQIA plus film festival. Um, I started it, I will say I'm the founder. I started it in 2006, but not as a film festival. It was a program and we had worked with our local like LGBTQ community center and it was coming up on Pride and they were like, hey, you want to book some some pride films and we'll help sponsor it like we've got some money we can put towards you know whatever film rights or whatever you need and it'll just get people like built up for for pride month so i was like sure let me do that i hadn't really um put together anything of any kind of substance when it came to the queer community and and film and i found suddenly this plethora of like new film new queer film going on but also a bunch of classics that were available so i made a nice little balance series of some classics and some new stuff and i found so much of it that i was like you know what this can become a monthly program and i can guarantee that i can do a queer film a month for a while like if this is the series was a success and I think I can make it into a monthly program as that's also a success. So I did that. So I just called it Cinema Q, you know, Q for queer. And I just went rolling with that for a couple of years. And then I just kept finding more and more new film that I was like, you know what? This can be a whole festival. It's time to let, let's celebrate a, a giant chunk of these movies um, and and keep it going. So 2009 we was our first iteration as a film festival. And when I say film festival, uh, it's more of a mini film festival. I, our goal was not to have like 100 films um, in the program. We always shot for like 15. Like we were like, let's do this like a Thursday to a Sunday and do 15 films. And they're all new stuff. So those filmmakers will want to come out or actors associated with it. And really engage the queer community locally in in that programming. And from the gate, out of the gate, it was very successful. Um, and so here we are in 2023, looking at our 15th anniversary as a film festival. And um, I think we have one of our best selections coming up this year. Our film, our Cinema Q Film Festival is August 10th through the 13th um, at the C Film Center. And um, it's a really nice snapshot, I think, of where the queer community is right now, which is one of the whole joys of putting together a film festival is really seeing the brand new stuff that um, that's going on. Um, and of course, welcoming a, a really amazing queer cult icon like Udo Kier for a double feature of 
blood for Dracula and flesh for Frankenstein and let him talk about his 300 movies and his weird stories, his relationship with Fastbinder back in the day and all sorts of stuff. Like, it's going to be a great weekend. So that's awesome. Udo is a very charming maniac. And I mean that in the (laughs) nicest way possible. Uh, You've also you you've been working on a documentary for how long now about 15 years it's called the heels have eyes you want to talk a little bit about what that is yeah um about 15 years ago and i was always a fan of drag but it had kind of fallen off my radar when i was in like college and you know other other times of my life and about 15 years ago, I wandered into one of our local queer bars and it was like a cold winter's night and it was, the bar was absolutely packed and there was a drag show going on. And this was just before RuPaul's Drag Race had come out the very first season. And there was this performer that went on stage named Nina Flowers who was doing such a, their look was not what we think of when we think drag. They had a very, they were bald headed. They had some kind of like headpiece attached to their head. Their makeup was very wild, but beautiful. Um, And they just captivated the audience with this whole thing. And it was really amazing. And then on top of them, after that, um, there were like seven or eight other performers in the show that came out who were equally just as like mind blowing in various ways. And the dormant filmmaker side of me was just like, yeah, I think there's a moment here you got to capture. So I figured something's out, came back a few weeks later with a camera and just started filming the performances. And then talking to the performers agreeing to let you know can i ask you a few questions on camera and stuff like that um and it was very just like you know 11 o'clock news <laughs> kind of stuff, <laughs> like everything um but the more i kind of thought about it like i was like the scope of this is really interesting because i was hearing more and more about the drag community in denver and how deep its roots went and that performer Nina Flowers was actually cast on the very first season of RuPaul's Drag Race, which was just about to debut. And there was this kind of just like capturing this moment of getting in with them in these performances, that performer taking off into the stratosphere once that show started to air, RuPaul's Drag Race starting to change the direction of a lot of things, uh, especially in the drag community. And then I just never really stopped filming for about 13 years, 12 or 13 years. I filmed a million performances. Um, I did a GoFundMe to, or a Kickstarter actually, to uh, get some sizable money to really do some nice things for the movie. Um, Raised over $20,000, spent $20,000 on those nice things (laughs) in interviews. Um, and then it kind of reached a point where there's still a couple of things to be done, but ran out of money, ran out of time, ran out of stuff. So it's it's been kind of in a holding pattern for a couple of years. But 
it is going to come out in the near future. I just need to get some things back on track, but it, it's been kind of definitely like a life's goal to finish this movie, mostly because it's it's kind of acting as like a clog in my creative pipe <laughs> for a little bit. I really need to do this and get it out into the universe before I get to tackle anything else uh, cinematically that I do want to get to. But there's an amazing story within the documentary. There's a ton of amazing performers. And that's really what the, like the crux of what I was trying to get at was drag is this performance art that is so fantastic. And right now is very in the news is, is very much, you know, for the wrong reasons, like on people's tongues and it's been around for a long, long time, even before all this, you know, political stuff came into fray. But there are people who do this job and it is their art and it excites them and it, it's their therapy and it does all these other things. And I feel like in Denver, we've been able to capture a perfect array, a very diverse array of performers who can tell everybody in the world what it is they do and why they do it and why it is so important and i just really like need to get that on screen but that's that's the little little pull in there and then the heels have eyes as a name is just because i think i think i'm clever <laughs> that's funny but uh i also uh one dreamed about notion of this movie which will still take place is that I I drafted these movie trailers that would play throughout the film that would be starring all these drag performers. Um, and they're of all different genres. So the the horror genre trailer in that movie is The Heels Have Eyes. I have one last question for you. So as a film program, there are always it seems there's always maybe a film or two that you've always wanted to show, but for whatever reason, either because materials don't exist or it's just, you know, for whatever reason, you're, you just haven't gotten around to it. There's like a white whale film that you want to screen. Do you have one of those? I don't think I do mostly because I think I, we're, we're at a time and a place where even if I did have a white whale, I think that everything's been discovered <laughs> at this point i mean i have no interest in ever showing you know the day the clown cried um so that's not <laughs> we think we talk about lost movies or never to be movies like that's not on my hot list um <laughs> but i i feel like everything that i have ever wanted to play even if there was a time period where it was like oh there's no prints of that eventually we got to a point where it's like oh negatives were found of this and someone made a really beautiful 4k restoration of it and i'm like fantastic now that all of this doris wishman stuff has been accumulated and restored i've wanted long wanted to do a very great doris wishman retrospective i don't know <laughs> if the audience is there for it uh, especially here in Denver, Colorado, but I would like to try. Um, and I kind of have a dream of, I guess I'd heard tell that Natasha Leone is somewhat related to Doris Wishman. Like she grew up with Doris Wishman, like Doris Wishman was somehow a family friend and she just has a lot of perspective on Doris Wishman and her films. 
and I love the notion of her coming to like celebrate that in, in some capacity. So, you know, Natasha's hot again on a bunch of series. So I may need to wait. Like, uh, I don't know. Maybe now the time. Now's the time <laughs> during that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I still I, I would love to do that. I'd love to have her curate it. I'd love to get some special touches on it. And you know, I I can I can already hear her be like Denver, Colorado. Why would I go? <laughs> okay, if they want me. Um, but yeah, adore. We're gonna do an Agnes Varda retrospective next year. But as as important as Agnes Varda is, I feel Doris Wishman is just. <laughs> She's right up there. Um, and I think that both those retrospectives can exist <laughs> in a nice world. So that that is the beauty of repertory cinema. You can do Igmar Bergman, you can do Abel Ferrara, and you can do him a month apart, and it's all makes sense because exactly. film film is beautiful. Keith, where can they where can people find you in the C Film Center online? Uh, denverfilm.org is our main address for the C and for all the things that we do at Denver Film. Uh, and I'm constantly on Instagram and Twitter at uh, Constant Watcher is my handle. And uh, yeah, I try to try to be good about film musings and whatnot there. So I imagine I'll have to start a letterbox account soon, but who knows. <laughs> Wow, that's that's the that's the final frontier of film online. This is your you don't did you really watch it if you didn't put log it on Letterbox? Exactly. <laughs> Keith, thank you so much and for taking the time and talk to me today about you know film programming and all that stuff. And yeah, thank you so much. You're so very welcome. Thanks for asking questions.